Hi everybody and welcome to Life After Corona, uh, a conversation between the elephant and concerned citizens on the past, present and possible futures after this pandemic. Today I'll be speaking to Patrick Gathara. Uh, Gathara is an award-winning cartoonist and a journalist based here in Nairobi, Kenya. Karibu Gathara. Uh, before we start, I mean, I'd just like to know how you're doing, how is the family and how are you guys coping with uh, this pandemic? particularly because I know you have kids, school-going kids, and uh, the, the idea of homeschooling, and I'm seeing it, it's a mess online. <laughs> outside, of course, <laughs> outside, of course, of the, <laughs> your, your current, your, your always ongoing uh, displeasures about KPLC and Ngumo, not having lights in Ngumo. How, how are you doing, Buana? I'm uh, doing well. Um, the, uh, like everybody else, trying to cope with the, having stuck in the house. Uh, yeah, you point out the uh, kids are at home. Uh, well, they're doing their schooling using Zoom. Um, I'm not sure how effective that is, but uh, we'll try to keep tabs uh, uh, on it and to help them out where we can. Um, but yeah, I think this is the new normal for the next uh, few months. So uh, we have no choice other to get used to. Mm -hmm. That's our side. So, I mean, quickly, let, let's just jump into it. And... Uh -huh. Just quickly, quickly give me just a, a broad overview of how you've seen uh, governments, not just in Kenya, but global, global, globally, you know, US, Europe, parts of other parts of Africa, Asia, how they've responded uh, towards this COVID-19 so far. Um, well, I think the governments have, uh, in essence, used this uh, crisis uh, um, to enhance their own uh, power. You know, uh, from when it broke out, I mean, you saw it very quickly with China, but I was kind of expected with the lockdown that they came in, and everybody thought that was draconian, that would, wouldn't be done elsewhere. Well, it's become the normal uh, uh, everywhere. And uh, you can see almost um, uh, an insistence by government that they require um, um, this sort of extraordinary power, almost an accountable power, in order to fight the disease. In our, so we are locked up in our houses. They come up, they give us a series of numbers, scary numbers, etc. Um, and there's very little questioning that's, in, uh, uh, that's encouraged. Uh, I mean, in the case of Kenya, for example, you'll see it, I mean, they quickly make a statement, uh, take one or two questions and then walk away. You know, um, I, I know it's different in other parts of the world. South Africa, I think, um, had one that went up, what, yeah, or something. Um, uh, everyone watches the US one, which is uh, sometimes pretty long before um, Trump now ran away from it. So uh, there are differences, but there is still this sort of general theme of governments becoming more and more trusted, if you will. Um, we are all being urged to simply obey what they tell us. Um, uh, they roll out this uh, panel of uh, scientists, you know, and uh, they tell us how all these restrictions are justified by the science is almost dictated by the science. Um, and, and I am uh, quite uncomfortable by, by this notion that we cannot question it, that we are not allowed to debate the choices that they are making as if it is the scientists making decisions. But nobody elected the scientists, you know. These are political decisions being made. These are judgment decisions that are being taken by politicians. 
And we need to be able to ask on what basis are they doing this? Are these the only options that they have, that we have as a society? And are there better ways um, of tackling this? Um, and I think the more you hear phrases such as, um, it is not the time to point fingers, it is uh, the time to come together and simply obey. You know, I think that's when we really need to be scared. Um, so the first time this has happened, uh, you remember during the um, terrorism crisis, um, which peaked between uh, 2013 and 2016, there was much of the same talk that no, you shouldn't really question government, you should simply uh, support them, honor our troops, you know, uh, be patriotic, just follow and obey what you're told. And lots of the freedoms that we lost then, we've never gotten them back. And I think we have to be really careful because lots of what we might lose for, uh, during this uh, crisis, um, it's unlike that we ever actually get it back. Mm. So, I mean, so, I mean, so, so quick one. Uh, recently, I mean, you, you recently published an article in The Elephant uh, talking about how government of Kenya uh, is, is tackling COVID-19 using colonial edicts. And would you, would, you, would, you, would you kindly elaborate on what, what did you mean by, by this and how it's manifesting today? Well, we've seen the, how the government has treated the, 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 the corona response. Um, uh, it's essentially been presented in a series of um, directives. They themselves call them directives. But then call for obedience, hmm. you know, and uh, we've, we've now gotten used to sort of uh, constantly being uh, no, I, you know, uh, about obliterated about our lack of obedience and being threatened by even more measures if we don't obey. You know. And this is it's almost as if we are petulant children who are simply really got to do what the adult is telling us and the adult here being the state. That's a very colonial way of viewing people. You know, um, uh, when the white guys came here, that's how they saw us. Uh, that's how they treated Africans, basically um, uh, as, as, as children incapable of reasoning, of reason, um, people who best were tackled using force, you know. Um, and it, it's something that we have continued to date. You know, it's, it's this um, attitudes that uh, are infused within the way government relates to its people. And so, I mean, enforcing a curfew that's supposed to be for the benefit of the people is done using clubs. People, I mean, police go out on the streets with tear gas and whips. You know, how is this a way to treat a pandemic? You know, a health crisis, you know, um, and you could see in this thinking, in, in, in how we they, they, they view us, is, is very much not as fully grown, mature adults. There's still this idea that we've got to be civilized, to be taught manners, you know, to be taught obedience and how to be adults, you know, rather than actually sitting down with us and talking to us, actually persuading us that this is what is required. Because if democracy is anything, you know, it is us ruling ourselves, not putting in a government that then beats us up and then tells us what to do, you know. And it's always got to be a government that seeks consent, 
And unfortunately, we do not see consent being prioritized by this government. It is more about obedience. It's more about simply towing the line. And that to me is a real throwback to so I mean, so I mean, so I mean, you, you, I mean, talking about even colonial edicts. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, someone listening to this at home might be wondering: we are fifty-six years into independence. Why are we still talking about uh, the colonial state and these colonial edicts? You know, someone might come and say, "Come on, Gadara, You know, we got independence in nineteen sixty-three. Why are we still pondering about you know colonialism and the the colonial state? Um, we've got distinguish uh, between independence, which was a, a political act, um, uh, and uh, liberation or decolonization. These are not the same things, you know. In essence, we were given independence. We were given a flag, we were given an anthem, you know, we were given a president with a big motorcade, you know, we could and ministers who could fly flags on their cars, you know. But the thing, the, the, the state continued very much as it had been prior to 1963. And you don't have to take my word for it. Masinde um, Muliro in 1966 you know, says we've got a black man's government, yet that government enforces the very same rules in the very same way that the white colonial government did. You know. So there's nothing much that changed you know, in the sense of a systemic change. Gitumi Gai, writing in uh, 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 the paper in 1982, Gai, uh, the former attorney general, you know, essentially says that, um, that there was the, 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 the colonial apparatus um, uh, which did not rely, you know, on our consent, did not rely on our constitution, on one body of law, as, as he puts it, you know, essentially was retained after independence. And when we brought in a constitution and tried to reform that colonial apparatus, what happened was the constitution itself got changed, the apparatus remained. And that's what I call the colonial state. That's what stayed. That is the basis under which we are governed. You know, it's never changed. Um, our most recent attempt to change it is the 2010 constitution. Look what's happening to that and the difficulties we are having enacting um, uh, 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 the vision that was in that constitution. When we want to get rid of the provincial administration, suddenly it can't go, it's simply called something different and it is retained. You know, um, The police force, we call it a police service, yet it behaves exactly the same way it behaved prior to 2010. You know, So these continuities within the state uh, what convinced me that actually we did not decolonize. And I think we need to have a conversation as Kenyans about what decolonization would mean. What is it, what was the vision of people like Dedan Kimathi when they were in the forest? What did they think about how Kenya should be run? You know, did we really simply think that the problem was, oh, we have some white guys who rule over us, we get rid of them, but keep things pretty much the same. Oh, are there fundamental things that require changes, you know, and why they actually And it's not just Kenya that needs this conversation. It is the entirety of Africa. Across Africa, you still have, in essence, colonial states that continue with black guys ruling in the place of white people. 
but essentially keeping a system that was built, designed to oppress and steal, you know, and they, and they retain it, you know, and notice at how efficient that system is across Africa at extracting goods, at extracting resources, at extracting dignity from the majority of the people and feeding it up to a tiny minority. It does that very well because that is what it was built to do. It was just that the people at the top were meant to be white. You know, we replaced them with black guys, but still feeding up our resources up there. You know. So that's why you can hear today in Kenya, for example, um, the government proudly announces that um, the 29 people who died um, uh, in the mudslide was it in, in, in Pokot, mm. um, uh, that uh, oh, we'll give them 50,000 shillings each, the, their families, for the burials. But it spent hundreds of millions. Barry William Olentimama, it spent hundreds of millions. Barry Lucy Kibaki, it spent hundreds of millions to bury. Uh, Daniel Arab you know, these single people take the huge uh, share of the national resource as if we exist for their sake, we exist to make life better for them, not the other way around, you know, and that is really what a colonial state was built to do, was to feed our resources up to the colonials, you know, that's why they had things like Kahata, you know, where they would come around and pick money simply because you've got a hat, you know, and they take it for themselves, you know. So throughout, this is how things have been run. And we need to get much more serious about, where, uh, uh, about how we reform this state and actually have a discussion. Now, I wouldn't even rush into what is the solution. Is let's actually have a discussion, a chat about what is it that we want out of the state? Um, it wasn't ours, it was, we didn't invent it, it was imposed upon us. We want to retain it. You know, let's start there. If we want to retain it, in what form do we want to retain it? To do what? You know, what's the relationship we should have with it? You know, and I think if we started having that discussion, then we can actually come to a point where the things that we put in place, we can start asking, you know, rather than building on a rotten foundation, you can excavate the entire foundation, take it out, and then say, all right, let's start afresh, you know, and build up something that works for us rather than works for the stuff people. Mm, I mean, speaking, speaking, of, speaking of the colonial state, I mean, you're talking about 1963, I mean, Kenya got, as you said, political independence. And then we passed the Majimu Constitution, which was, um, you know, the history, it was completely, completely butchered. We fought, mm -hmm. for, we fought for 1992, multi-party. We thought it was, it was a step forward. Uh, we removed Moy into a two, thinking that this was, this was the, he was the Leviathan in the step of Kenya's progress. <laughs> in 2010, I mean, after uh, PV in 2007, we passed the Constitution that we have hailed as one of the most progressive in the world. And then my question would be, I mean, despite all these reforms, uh, whether in constitutionally, but also even uh, numerous commissions, what, are we, what, what do we miss? What do we miss to move forward? What's the Achilles heel in, in this space we call Kenya? Is it the political class? Is it the international system? Uh, is it the people themselves, as the BBI report told us before? What, what are we missing? 
Now what we are missing is that colonial state. That's the thing we are scatting throughout. Mm. You know, if we're going to reform, reform is not simply passing a constitution. Constitution itself is not reform. A constitution just gives you a vision of mm. what you want to have. And what sometimes we do is we mistake that vision for the reality. You know, the reality is not the constitution. You know, constitution is not what comes and bangs down your door in the middle of the night. It's not what clubs a six-month-old baby, you know. And what you've got to ask is, to what extent have we actually implemented this vision? To what extent have we actually made the constitution alive, you know, such that things work because the constitution says this is how they should work? To, what, to the extent that it is ignored, you know, and we know in a very large way it is ignored, you know, um, uh, uh, in, in our government measures, in how government relates to us, in whether or not um, uh, it lives up to things like the two-thirds gender principle, in the fact that 77 or so, uh, or several dozen people were killed uh, during the post-election violence in 2017, and nobody has been punished for it, you know, we know. That is the constitution being ignored, you know. Um, uh, and we've got then to ask ourselves, you know, when we are changing, what is it we are changing? Are we simply changing the form of things and ignoring their substance? Are we saying police reforms is simply, oh, let's put an institution called IPOA and then hope things will work, you know? Um, if IPOA gets its investigations, uh, has to hire the, or has to incorporate policemen to do its own investigation, how likely is it that the police will investigate themselves or their own colleagues? You know, we've got to ask these questions. We've got to ask when you see the president stand up every day or uh, uh, um, many days and give an order to the police commissioner when the, uh, the question expressly says he cannot do this, you know. And we allow it because we think, oh, he's protecting us, whatever. We are undermining that very document. So we've got the form, but not the substance of the vision that the constitution wants. And until we actually get to grips with why it is we don't get the substance, why we are always at this point of having the form. Why we do the TJRC report, we spend two billion on it. You know, we interview 40,000 people, you know, which is the most any um, uh, uh, Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission of any, anywhere in the world has done. And then we bury it, you know, and it is forgotten. It doesn't influence anything. It doesn't change anything, you know. So what was this exercise for? Was it just something for sure? You know, um, and until we come to grief to that and we say, well, actually this, whatever it is that we are passing has got to work for us. It is not about um, uh, uh, the politici our politicians. You know, if you look at um, the post-election uh, um, agreement, the coalition agreement, I mean, the national accord itself, um, uh, it's interesting, the first three uh, agenda items, you know, were very quickly affected. And they're very quickly affected because they affected the politicians, you know. 
So whether it was getting together uh, and having the agreement, uh, creating positions, you know, uh, uh, etc., the Grand Coalition Cabinet, etc., all that was done immediately. Agenda four, which was now about us, was about historical injustices. Was about let us fix the things that are at the root of why we end up with a lack of violence. That was forgotten. You know. So again, it was about the form. It was about who oh, it looks like we are sorting out things. But really, what they wanted was uh, their, their 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 chance on the, on the gravy train. You know. So we've got to again, I think, be pushing. When the Kibana used to talk about people-driven systems, that's where we need to go back to. You know, where it is not about what they get, it's about what we get. It's not about whether Raila becomes prime minister. It's not about whether Kenyatta gets a third term, you know, or whatever. It, that, that doesn't matter. It is about whether it works for Kenya. So what we get at the end of it actually gives us something so that we go back saying this state is accountable to us, it belongs to us, it works for us. Mm. Thanks, thanks for that, Kalara. I mean, you're talking about, again, this is a colonial state. There's also mm -hmm. a conversation that you've, you've had before, I mean, you've written about it, uh, with the media in particular, and how the media uh, has been and is uh, a, a pillar that actually uh, endorses this colonial state. Within the current COVID-19 crisis, how, how has this played out uh, in, in, your, in your view? Well, I think uh, our media is, is captured um, uh, uh, largely by the political class. It fails to question the motives and agendas of the political class um, and, and that the state itself pushes. So um, uh, throughout the whole COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis, uh, we've not had much in terms of questioning what the state is doing, encouraging people to uh, understand and uh, ask questions about what it is, uh, about the options that are being put to us. There's been this sort of push of simply obey, this repetition of what the state is saying. So I'll give an example. Um, um, every day we've got these numbers that are given to us uh, about you know how many confirmed COVID cases that uh, the government has. Uh, has found, how many have recovered, how many have died. And I have a question, what do these numbers mean? Does that mean that the whole of Kenya has, what, 320, 330 um, uh, people with uh, coronavirus? Probably not, you know, given that we are testing a minuscule, I think it's something like 0.02% of the population that we test. You know, uh, or we've tested so far. So we really don't know. But these are numbers that are then provided and the media regurgitates them as if they mean something. You know, but what it is they mean, they don't tell us. You know, um, uh, we're told we need to go into lockdown. I say, okay, fine, explain to us, you know, why is it that a country like South Korea did not go into a lockdown? What can we learn from there? Is the only option we have what the government is saying. Why do we have professors in places like South Africa arguing, well, actually, you guys, in, in, uh, I mean, uh, people in Africa, 
Um, we cannot afford to simply copy what the West is doing. We don't have the resources to maintain what they can do. You know, I was listening to CNN yesterday, and I think it was uh, on Farid Zakaria. I would ask people to, to actually have a look at it. Um, uh, uh, speaking to Bill Gates, you know, and they are also questioning why are you guys in Africa trying to do what the West is doing? You know, um, uh, and he gave the example that in some slums, I think uh, I also saw an article about this. Uh, I'm not sure it's in Time magazine. But, but in some slums um, in Africa, they are so um, congested that the minimum distance that we ask for uh, social distancing, you don't achieve it by being at home. And actually letting guys go to work might be the way to do social distancing, you know. But we don't think about this. We don't try and adapt the, the, or we are not being encouraged to adapt the scientific advice to our own circumstances and come up with our own solutions. How do we do this? It's almost like, oh, we've got to ape what those guys are doing, you know. And this brings me back to how does our media then start mediating a conversation between people and the state? It is not doing this. It is simply repeating what the state is saying. It's not a space for a discussion. In fact, you're having much more honest, open discussion online on uh, social media forums than you're having on our newspaper pages. And that is really a sad, sad comment um, uh, uh, about the press and about the role it is playing. I think that eventually it was going to be, I mean, hopefully that the, the media will start to learn that you cannot simply be a sounding board uh, uh, for the authorities. That you've got to be able to mediate and to ask questions, to stand in the space of citizens and to say, well, well how important is this? Why is this important? To break down what is being given, to pick out what is important and to tell people, this is what you need to know. This is what matters here. And to encourage people to think through what their government is doing, because that's how then they start to hold the government to account, you know, um, rather than simply be um, uh, this space where government speaks and, and, and uh, people really have no, where they don't have the wherewithal to actually engage with what is being said. Mm. So lastly, Gavara, because we have talked about the, this colonial state and reforming it. But as I mean, as uh, this year we mark 100 years of, of the Kenyan state, right? And still 100 years, 100 years mm -hmm. down the road, we are, we are still we're still talking about this thing. So my last question mm -hmm. is: Do we do do we need the one this idea of Kenya to to take place on? And and if and if not, and if so, how do we reform it? Um. Well, you're right, we're getting into, uh, uh, I think later on this year, it will be 100 years since um, uh, uh, the Kenya colony was established. Precisely. Uh, I, I was set up. So um, I think it's a good time for us to ask the question about whether the Kenya colony is still what we want, whether it's ever been what we wanted, you know, and if it is not, then what do we want in its place? You know, I think the, the first and initial thing that we need to do is to have the composition. I think that's what people keep running away from. 
they're all too quick to demand, let's have a solution, you know, before they actually understand what is the problem that we are solving, you know. So let's have the discussion and let's not have limitations about what we can imagine for ourselves, you know. We don't have to have a state simply because a state exists in England or in the US, you know. We don't have to ape what they have. We make something that is ours, that is our own. You know? And I would say, let's have a discussion about whether it is necessary. You know? Do we need the state? If we do, why do we need it? What do we want it to do? You know? And let's have that discussion. Let's acknowledge that people's experiences of this state are very different. You know, If you are in central Kenya, and how a guy in Nyanza, and how a guy in uh, uh, the northeast in Mandera or Garissa, how these three people experience the state is very different, you know. So can they get together and say, all right, this is what we want, you know. Is there even the basis for doing that? And I think we could find commonalities that then we agree ourselves that this is something we want. You know, and I think the TJRC report was supposed to um, give us a space to have that discussion. If you read through it, it goes all the way back to the uh, uh, pre-independence piece. Doesn't spend too much time discussing that. But what it tries to do is to gather Kenyans' experience of this of this thing we call the state. You know how they have experienced it across the breadth of our country, you know, and to say, well, here's a starting point. You can start saying, this has been the historical experience. You know, is this something we want to continue? What do we want to change? What do we think is better? You know, and I think if we start crafting a better and a more informed idea of what our own history is, then that would allow us to start crafting a better idea of what the future can be, you know. And it will be something that is not borrowed. It won't be a vision 2030 that is sort of painted to look like uh, a futuristic New York or something. You know, it is something we decide that we want. You know, if we, whether we're talking about education system, whether it's about policing, you know, it's not just something that we adopt because it is done elsewhere. We sit and we say, we want the police because we want them to be like this. Do we want them to stay with us? Do we want them to put them in barracks that the colonials did? You know, we want to have an army. You want to be like Costa Rica, which doesn't have an army, you know, uh, or Japan, which is a pacifist state. You know, yeah, these are all options, you know. And what I'm saying is we don't need to lock ourselves into particular imaginations. We can actually act like free people and decide for ourselves and do the unfinished work, which is uh, where we'll end, the unfinished work of 1963. You know, decolonization did not happen. We got independence, but we did not decolonize. We continued with the colonial state, with the colonial tropes and the colonial ways of being. You know, so that is the work that remains. And I think that our generation can actually go back and say, well, let's pick that up. Let's say, all right. We are not going to have our kids go through this same thing. You know, we are going to, to 
actually go do the work that our fathers didn't do. You know, see it, negotiate, talk about what we want and refashion this thing we call this is to be what we want. And I think if we did that, then our kids can actually look to a future where they are free to be whatever they want without having to constantly battle this thing that was imposed on us 100 years ago. Oh, Kalara, oh, on that very powerful note, I'll, I'll, I'll end this here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks a lot, Buana. Say I to pass my regards to the family, Buana. I will, I will. Okay. Okay.